I am Mike Sherritt, the interim pastor here at Wallace. If you are tuning in as a visitor on behalf of our church family, thank you so much for joining us. Where am I looking? I'm sorry, here or here? Right there. Okay, good. We are in a series on in 1 Peter, and I'm going to take a slight detour, and here's why. I trust that you were as encouraged and challenged by Paul and Allison's visit with us last week as I was, deeply encouraged, uh, these two servants of Jesus who came from Crossroads Resolution Group to help us in a season of needing peacemaking and healing. And what I'd like to do is with my pastor's pen is I want to underline some of the things Paul shared with us. I want to take a highlighter and highlight a couple of key things that struck me as vitally important and worth dwelling on. And to do that, what we'll do is fast forward in 1 Peter to chapter 3 and look at verses 8, and 12, 8 through 12, focusing mainly on 8. I'll come back to this text in subsequent weeks. I do want to acknowledge that this follows specific instructions to husband and wives, and verse 8 is kind of a capstone that fits husband and wife relationships, but clearly Peter is speaking to the entire church because he says, finally, all of you. I'm going to focus very narrowly on verse 8, but read 8 through 12 as a way of uh, trying to drive an emphasis for us from Paul and Allison's ministry. So our text is 1 Peter 3, 8 to 12. Finally, all of you have humility, excuse me, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I'm told by the experts that the point of wearing a mask is not to protect me from your germs as much as to protect you from my germs. I wear a mask so that what's in me, virus, whatever, is not projected from me to you. It's an act of loving your neighbor, protecting your neighbor against you, what's in you, your junk. Is there an equivalent in our relationships? Is there a way to protect others from your junk? Yes. It's in the text, and it's at least in what Peter calls a humble mind. And just as you're going into the stores today, and most of the stores have signs on them that say, no entrance without a mask, Peter is saying, don't try relationships without a humble mind. You must put it on to protect others 
from you. If you don't put it on, you're placing others at risk. And the last thing anybody in their right mind wants to do is put others in their family, their church family at risk. Bring harm to them. That's the last thing we want to do. So don't leave home without your mask. Don't leave home without a humble mind. So let's answer this question. What does the humble mind think about? I want to call attention to the fact that it's very intentional about four distinct things. Number one, the humble mind thinks intentionally about God. This is God's Word. God's Word tells us what's on His mind. It tells us what's important to Him. And we learn from God's Word that because He deserves it, the most important thing to God is receiving the honor and the glory and the worship and adoration of all of His creatures. In other words, God's primary zeal is to receive glory from the world. And all human beings are exposed to God's glory in the creation, but sadly, only enough to leave them without excuse. They'll never say there is no God. So where does everyone in the world see concretely manifested the love of God? God is love, the Bible tells us. He's irrepressibly and immensely kind and generous and good and loving. Where in this world is that most clearly seen? The Bible tells us it is seen in the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ. And that is why God is supremely interested with how we relate to each other in the church. The love of God is seen in us, believers. Think about how Jesus put it in John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have great doctrine, if you have wild and wonderful church services, if you serve the community well. No, those things are important. If you have love for one another, a follower of Jesus is preeminently marked by their love for their brothers and sisters. And so our unity together reveals what God is like. Jesus prayed a, a very intense, specific, lengthy prayer to his father in the upper room within earshot of his disciples on the night in which was, he was being betrayed. And he prays this among other things in that prayer in John 17. Father, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know you sent me and loved them as you loved me. How does this world know God loves his son and his son loves us? By our unity. Peter heard Jesus pray those words. He heard Jesus say, John 13, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so Peter is acutely aware that you and I need to be aware of this dynamic. Other people have a right to say, oh, I want to know God because of the way you guys love each other. No wonder Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 
beginning of Ephesians 4, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. There's more at stake than just the quality of our relationships together. It's what the watching world sees about the glory and the love of God. And Peter goes on, and again, I'll come back to this text in subsequent weeks and we'll unpack it more carefully, but Peter gives you a sobering incentive to fulfill verse 8, particularly to have a humble mind. He says the truly humble mind is God-minded and it takes the promise and the warning seriously. What's the promise? Verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their prayer. Wow! You want God's eye on you. That's the promise of his favor, his protection, his provision, his presence in your life. You want to, God's ears to be open to your prayer. That means you have this unspeakable privilege of communing with God. What a promise. And then there's this warning. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And evil in this context may be just the opposite of all the qualities he delineates in verse 8. Sympathy, brotherly love, humble mind. So the the humble-minded person embraces that promise, is nourished by it, and is sobered by the warning, the last thing in the world I want is for the face of the Lord to be against me. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that on Judgment Day, it will be revealed that the way you treated other people in your life, you were actually treating Jesus that way. You did it unto me. So if you're not wearing your face mask, you're spreading the virus. The humble mind thinks about God. Secondly, thinks intentionally about yourself. What I mean is there's a deliberate, regular, daily progression of facts that you rehearse over and over and over again, really until you die, about yourself. Here are some of the facts. It's in the outline if you have access to the bulletin. Fact, I'm a war. Earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he reminds believers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. If you're at peace with God through Jesus Christ, you are correspondingly at war with sin. Sin is at war inside of you. Indwelling sin, relentlessly seeking to get the better of you. That means for life to work, something must be killed. We are called to mortify all the deeds of indwelling sin. And so I can't go to war against stuff that's wrong with you until I have first gone to war against my own sin. Paul called attention to that teaching of Jesus in Matthew 7. Before you get the speck out of your brother's eye, Take the log out of your own. Then you'll see clearly. Our logs, all that's wrong with us, <laughs> all manifestations of our pride, all lack of humility, all lawlessness, all, all failure to glorify God in anything, those logs blind us from seeing others and ourselves clearly. If you're not taking your logs out, <laughs> you're spreading the virus. Fact, I'm weak. The more acquainted you are with biblical teaching, the more readily you are to admit this. I need to change more than I know. I am not as humble as I think I am. 
I am far more proud than I know. But for the grace of God, I would be worse than you. I'm easily distracted by other people's specs. I don't naturally deal with or see my own logs. And often what I detect is wrong in you becomes a mirror to reflect back to see stuff in my own heart I need to deal with that I am not seeing. Therefore, third fact, I'm dangerous. Left to myself, my sin is the greatest threat to our relationship. And therefore, I need to be constantly on guard. Every seed of every sin is in me and left to itself. It will find expression. There's a war inside of me. I don't want to export to other people. (laughs) I don't want to export the fruit of that war. So if left to myself, my idols, the things I demand, I desire that are more important than God, they're going to hurt you, whether it's the need to be right, the need to be in control, the need for approval, Think of conflict in relationships as smoke. If you walk into your house and there was smoke, you would work diligently to find the source of that smoke. You've got to find where the smoke is coming from. And then you've got to put out the fire. (laughs) There is a fire at the heart of our conflicts. And oftentimes these fires are fueled by the way we speak, by our words. Man, aren't words easy to use? Words roll off our tongues effortlessly. Which is why the Bible warns us so soberly about their power. The humble mind, thinking about itself, scrutinizes its own words. The tongue of the wise brings healing. First of all, am I asking God for wisdom? Secondly, are my words bringing healing? Are my lips feeding many? That's from Proverbs 10, what was read earlier in this service. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Wow! My words can bring life. My words can kill. What are they doing? I'm scrutinizing. I'm thinking. I'm I'm thinking before I speak. (laughs) The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. What power, what beauty, what blessing, amazing. Your words as you are filled with the word of God from the Colossians 3 passage. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that your words are life givers. Five, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise rings healing. The fact that some people speak in such a way that it's like a sword means that how you say what you say is equally as important as what you say. Pleasant words are a honeycomb. Do you leave people sensing, man, that was delicious, that was sweet, I want more of that, by the way that you speak. Fact. I'm needy. I need a savior. I'm guilty. I'm so bad it took God sending his eternal son from his presence to this earth to be humiliated, scorned, mocked, mistreated, viewed with contempt, 
strung up on a hideous cross, it took the death of the Son of God to make me right in God's sight. I am so helpless, so hopeless, without Jesus Christ living and dying for me and being raised from the dead, I have no hope whatsoever. It took God doing this. That's how bad I am. And so fact, this shows how loved I am. It's the passage Paul has us memorizing and studying this week from Colossians 3. Put on as God's chosen one, holy and dearly loved. You're dearly loved. A heart of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It reads almost like verse 8 in 1 Peter 3 here. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint, of course we're going to have complaints against each other. He anticipates this because we're frail. We, 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 we transgress against each other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you forgive. And beyond all these, put on love. <laughs> I can never forgive, I can never bear with unless I am first filled with the love of God in me, and that love is so demonstrated in Christ dying for me when I was his enemy. You see the point? God's been merciful to me. Here's a huge dose of that mercy for you. If I'm holding back the mercy, I'm not putting on the mask. I'm spreading the virus. Thirdly, the humble mind thinks about God, thinks about itself, and it thinks about others. The humble mind thinks like Christ thinks. This classic passage from Philippians 2. You probably heard Jamie pray aspects of this in the pastoral prayer earlier. Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look out for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Hate to stop there because then Paul goes and he, he teases out the glory of that humble mind and what Christ did in that mind for us. The point I want to call out is when you get up every day, you either exist for two purposes, to serve your own interests or the interests of others. The humble mind says, I exist to count you more important than myself. And in that, in that spirit, the humble mind is intentionally self-aware of the impact you have on others. How do people experience you? Do they, for example, when they're with you, experience a pulling in or a pushing away? Does, think about it. Do, do your words, your tone, your posture, your demeanor, your eye contact, your body language... Do, do they create a space for other people that says, I welcome you. I'm here for you. Your interests are vitally critical to me. How about the way you react spontaneously or planned in situations? Is it pleasant? I have, I have relatives that it doesn't take much to set them off. And it's just unpleasant to be around them. You know people like that. You just kind of walk away. You're not that person, are you? You need to know whether or not you are. It's self-awareness is the point. You get the sense that when Jesus meets an individual in, in, in the Gospels, you get the sense that he has radar lock on that person, that at that moment, that person senses there's nothing more important in the world to Jesus than them. 
If you have the DNA of Jesus' humility pulsing through your heart, people will sense that about you. So think about your default mode of relating to people. Is it other-centered or is it self-centered? So as a rule, are you more caring and sympathetic and concerned? Or aloof, distracted, and uninterested? I mean, are you the person when people around you, they get no sense you have any interest in them? You're just in your own zone or orbit. That's not other-centered. That's not Christ. Are you, as a rule, open, inviting, warm, or shy, self-protective, standoffish, or cold? Are you disarming, vulnerable, or overbearing, dominating, condescending? As a rule, as you relate to others, are you attentive and focused or controlling, self-absorbed, demanding? Are you generally affirming of others or selfishly seeking their approval with flattery? Are you, as a rule, engaging, interested, inquisitive, or unapproachable, critical, and self-promoting? These are extremes, and I'm sure we drift in between them depending on the situation or mood, how hungry we are, the person that we're dealing with. But think about, you've got to be self-aware how people impact you. And they will impact you in a certain way. The humble mind in love wants to know that. And therefore, it makes inquiries. It asks questions. Is my impact on you promoting your interests? Are you better off for our interaction? Paul writes in Romans 15 too, Let each of you please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So what kind of contractor are you? <laughs> People in your lives are buildings. Are they built up? as a result of your interaction with them? Are they vacant? Are they falling apart? Are they left without resources? Am I keeping up with my, month, with my monthly debt payments to you? What do I mean? Paul writes in Romans 13.8, Oh, no one anything but to love them. So I woke up a debtor to everybody in my life. I owe them love. Am I keeping up with my monthly debt payments? Peter's terminology in this text is the word bless. We're to bless each other. That means I'm, I'm, I'm an agent of Jesus bringing good to you. I'm living proof that Jesus is kind. You can see it in the way I interact with you, the way I use my words, what I'm willing to do for you. If I'm not thinking that way, I'm not wearing my mask. I'm spreading the virus. Finally, the humble mind thinks intentionally about Jesus. And what I mean by that is you'll never know humility until you meet Jesus Christ in His. For example, how does Jesus invite weary, broken Desperate, guilty sinners to himself by saying, get your act together. Shape up. What's wrong with you? Come on! No. He does so with these words. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Come unto me, all you who are weary 
and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You will find rest for your souls, for I am gentle and humble in heart. When Jesus Christ bids people who know they're a mess, he bids them to find his heart gentle and humble. It's the very thing you know you need when you are racked with guilt and ruin. The humble, gentle heart of Jesus. Who knew that that's the way God is? God's heart? Humble. Gentle. The source of your rest. You hear in Jesus' words perhaps echoes of David's confidence spoken in Psalm 18, verse 35. David writes, You've given me the shield of your salvation. And your right hand supported me. This is the warrior speaking. And he says, and your gentleness made me great. Your gentleness. Who would have thunk? The gentleness of God. The condescension of God. God getting down in the dirt. God entering into your junk. Saves you from yourself. You see, in Jesus' humility, a fulfillment of the servant of the Lord's gentleness, Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not extend. Only God can enter a heart in, in, like a tornado, unbridled power, and not extinguish a little wick on a candle that's barely flaming. God can do that. You feel in Jesus' presence the comforting warmth of his light. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, anticipating Jesus coming, spoke this way, because of the tender mercy of our God. That's Jesus. The tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. The burning bright sun. Son of God. Son of brilliance. The light of the world is also the tender mercy of our God. And you heard this in the call to worship from from Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted, binds up their wounds. Moms and dads, you understand this at a very certain level. Your kids hurt themselves. They scrape their knee. They have a boo-boo. You are right in it. You are right there, binding, cleaning, touching, getting blood on your hands to bring the comfort, the compassion, the healing that your kid desperately wants. This is the humble heart of Jesus. Think about this simple summary of his earthly ministry. He voluntarily set aside some of the glories of his eternal prerogatives to come and be in the flesh with us. He felt no compulsion to assert or promote himself. Sometimes you're reading along and he's being attacked and you're like, stand up for yourself. Come on. He feared no man. Needed no one's approval. Jesus felt no need to abuse his unlimited, unbridled power. He's being arrested and 
he can call down, he tells us, 72,000 angels at that moment. If he wanted to, that wasn't the plan. He endured hideous injustices without demanding his rights. He suffered unwarranted scorn, derision, mocking, ridicule. He loved the unlovely, accepted the unacceptable, embraced the filthy. Beloved, he took the virus for you. For 33 years, there was never a reason to put a mask on to protect others from himself. He had no sin. And yet he went to the cross, sinless, and said, take down your mask and spew your sin into my body. I will take it from you. I will remove it. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. I will make you as perfect as I was the moment I came to this cross. This is the gospel. Dying in our place, taking our sin, setting us free from condemnation. The love of God in Jesus saving us from the virus of our despicable, rebellious sin. <laughs> Has he been crucified for you? Have you given him your sin? Have you asked him to forgive you? Have you said, I am wretched. I deserve that cross. I believe you took it for me because you make that promise. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on his name? This is the day to do that. He'll take your sin. He'll give you his life. He'll raise you from the dead. So beloved, no wonder the needy, the broken, were drawn to Jesus' humility. Desperate folks intoxicated with his glory. The broken found wholeness. The sick experienced healing. Those in darkness came into the light. Those in lies found the truth. The downcast revived in hope. The shaken, a refuge. The hunger, hungry new satisfaction. And those in chains unleashed into freedom. Freedom to know God. And freedom to make Him known in word and deed with the love of Jesus. So that's your pastor's one attempt to underline the start of Paul and Allison's ministry with us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we live because you live. We have hope because you've been raised from the dead. We are sure that the Father accepts us because your death was acceptable. We are your beloved because we know you, the beloved Son of God. And so you have poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Our prayer is that increasingly we ourselves would savor this love, relish it, bore into it, think on it, dwell on it, be intoxicated with it, Never stray far from this cross and see in it the cleansing power of His blood. And at the empty tomb, our future risen bodies in glory, enjoying God face to face forever. With that assurance, with that love, 
Let us bear with one another, forgiving each other if anyone has a complaint. As Christ has forgiven you, so forgive one another. And beyond all these things, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And may the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in one body. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's respond and sing this wonderful hymn.